We are in a season of Advent, and it's really a time in the church calendar for uh, us to take a break from wherever we are journeying through the Word to really prepare our hearts and our minds and, and our lives for what it is we're about to, as a church, gather around in our worship on Christmas, that Christ came into the world. And we remember that in Christ's first coming, there was an entire season of people waiting for him, waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled, that he would send his son into the world as Messiah. And in their waiting, we look at these themes that wherever we are waiting for God now, as, he, as we wait for his return now, as we wait for God to provide different areas of our life with things that we need from him, uh, we look at these ways that we can wait in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way. So as, as way of review, week one of Advent, we looked at waiting in hope, eagerly waiting for our Savior from heaven, our citizenship is in heaven, and we wait for him in hope, meaning that as we wait for God, we will not be disappointed. He will deliver on the things that we are asking him for and the things that we need from him. And then last week, we looked as we wait for the uncertainties of life to be resolved. Oftentimes, there's a tendency to wait with a sense of anxiousness or worry. And we looked at Philippians in the, in the way that it promises us as we wait on God and we trust him with prayer and thanksgiving, we can wait with our hearts guarded by his peace. And now, as your bulletin covers say, we look in Philippians, once again, for the theme that really, the Bible says, is the greatest theme or the greatest reflection of God's character that we can ever learn and live, and that is his love. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We are going to look at how this season is truly about the love of God on display in the way that he sent his son, in the way that we wait for him, and the way that we treat one another. So read with me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the, of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And so as we read that, there's a couple things that are happening. Paul, as he's writing this letter, is writing to a church that he helped lead and, and start, and he's essentially reminding them of all of the blessings they have in Christ. And so we start, as Paul starts, by saying, if you've been blessed by the Word of God, if you've been blessed by the power of God, if you've been blessed by the knowledge of Christ as your Savior for whom you eagerly wait, Paul says, if any of this has been a blessing to you, which if you know Christ, it has been, he then says, fulfill my joy. In other words, if you want to return the leadership of Paul in, in his church, if you want to make the leader proud, Paul says, fulfill my joy by being of like mind and having love for one another. And I love this passage of scripture specifically in the season that we're in right now because Paul is using his own desire for joy as a reminder for all of us what we all actually want in the form of a present or a gift or a thought this year, every one of you, it's the, the person that you think of that is the hardest to shop for, what they actually want, and, and, and we try to give this through a physical gift, is we all want joy. Every child will run and open the present, and no matter what it is, the end goal for them is not necessarily the thing, but the, the joy that the thing brings. And Paul will then go on to say, if you want that kind of joy, 
You have to have love. So he tells us what everybody wants, and then he tells us actually how to get it, which joy always comes. Fulfilling, long-lasting, satisfying joy is always the result of you finding yourself in some expression of the love of God. And whenever I read this passage of Scripture, I always think of my mom around this time because every year she asks for the exact same Christmas present. Every year. She says, all I want for Christmas is for my children to get along. <laughs> and so every year I try to give her that, and some years are better than others. And, and, you know, I have to say now that I'm a parent with kids that have the capacity to not get along, I absolutely relate to her request. If, if, if I could ask my children to give me one thing after all the presents have been opened and the food is on the table, if I could sit back and just see them enjoying each other, loving one another, that would be the miracle of Christmas for this father. And I'm sure some of you can relate to that. If you could have, it doesn't matter what gift is under the tree, if there's division and conflict and there's people that are at odds, especially in the family, it doesn't matter what the present is. If there's not love, you don't get the joy. And I, I can also relate not only to my mother, but I can relate to Paul as a leader of a fellowship because I can tell you as a pastor, there is no greater joy when I am part of a fellowship that I'm asked to lead or share the word of God, and when there's people serving one another, caring for one another, praying for those who are in prison, offering gifts for those who are in need, uh, just doing the everyday needs of, of, of what you find in each other's lives. When I see the church loving one another, it's like, this is actually an amazing calling. And the opposite is also true. <laughs> There's nothing worse than being a pastor who has to serve in a church that is just fighting and infighting. And by God's grace, this church is mostly very fulfilling in my joy. So I'm very grateful for that. But the, the, the reality of all of this is no matter how you relate to that desire for joy, no matter what object you attach your hopeful joy to, the ingredient is always love. And that's why in this season, one of the things we circle around every year is how do we have this kind of love so that we have the God-honoring joy that follows? And whenever you study love, whether you're in church or out, it can be challenging because it is a small word with a lot of different meanings, depending on who you talk to or what mood you're in or what age you are. When I say the word love, we all have different reference points and different sermons we've heard in church and out, which is why before we get into how Paul unlocks the key to love that he's describing, it's, it's probably worth looking at you know, a quote that's very valuable for our culture because our culture has a lot of debates over certain words, but I, I bring to the forefront of our minds the quote from the Princess Bride. Here it is. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Now, there's a lot of words we could put on the table and then put that quote before. But isn't that true of love? When I say love one another, what do we mean? And one thing I can start to answer that question, what are we actually talking about when we're talking about love? I can confidently say that we always mean, when we look at biblical love, what the Bible is describing in our call to love God and love one another, it is always more than what we currently think. Paul says in other letters that he writes to other churches that he's praying for them to understand, to comprehend the love of God that surpasses all knowledge. 
And he, he prays that they would just know this love that has no bounds, and it requires a prayer for you to grasp it, and it's something that you can study for the rest of your life, and you could come back and say, I'm just barely getting it. The love of God is the primary call. It's the greatest of all the virtues. And it is the hardest one to actually feel like we have any adequacy in. And so one thing we'll look at as we look at these measures of love that Paul is going to unlock for us, we're going to look at some ways that Paul encourages them to love that goes far beyond or is more than what we typically think of when we just go into the easy version of love that is sometimes passed around. And so we start by rereading what we already read and then asking him a question because he says this. He says, if you want to fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. So he says, have the same love. And you could read that in just the zoomed in one verse reading of it. And he, maybe you'd think, okay, he wants all of you to have the same style of love towards one another or a love that looks the same in the congregation of believers that is in one mind in love. But the context of this is unlocked with that word, therefore, that we started the, the reading with. He's referencing something he already wrote in the letter. When he says, have this same love, he's actually pointing back to a display of love that Paul shared from his life to them. It goes back to chapter 1, uh, and it sets the context for the entire letter. As, as we referenced, this letter is written as Paul is chained up in prison. He's been arrested, as he says, the chains of the gospel. So he's been preaching the gospel in ways that have put him in prison, and he's awaiting the outcome. This is a prison uh, sentence that hangs over his head that could lead to his freedom. It could also lead to his execution. And as he's writing this letter of encouragement, he's also reminding them that he himself is in a moment or in a, a season of life of great conflict. And when he thinks about the fork in the road of his life, to be executed or to be freed, he's also thinking about what he wants in that. And this is how we get to that classic verse of the Bible Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He says, for me, to live is Christ. In, in other words, if I stay alive, it, my mission is Jesus. My mission is to know him and to spread the joy of his gospel wherever I can. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It, it's a profound theology that he's living out. He's saying to die is to gain. And he'll go on to explain what he means. But if I live on in the flesh... If he stays alive, if he's acquitted and let free, this will mean fruit for my labor. He can continue to be the first missionary of the gospel. Yet, what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between two options. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ. To die is to gain, which is far better. So he's, he's wrestling around with two options in his life. To die is to gain. To depart is to be with Christ. This is a radical statement to believe as you're waiting in chains. But in a sense, if you believe in Christ and the promise of heaven, citizenship in heaven, you believe this. Even if it's a mustard seed of faith, eternity is better than earth. It is better for the saints who believe and have their names written in the book of life to exchange our temporary dwelling in these bodies that are filled with uh, decay and they're rotting away and they're perishing before our eyes. It is better to exchange those for our glorious bodies in heaven. Paul is living that out in real time when he says, I, it's, I could go to heaven right now. 
It's better for me to choose that I would be killed. And yet, he's torn. Because if he stays, if he is let free, there's something that would be better not for him, but for the people that he wrote to. He says in verse 24, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. He's got the decision to make. And he says, I love that phrase, he's hard-pressed. Do you ever feel that life puts you in the press when it's time to make a decision? This is the beginning of rethinking what we mean when we talk about love. And the first, love is more than what we're thinking when we, when we use the word. Love is more than a declarative statement about how you feel about someone. In this instance, love is not a declarative statement of happiness. Love is a hard-pressed decision between your interests and the interests of someone else. And if you're like me, I need a revival in my heart to remove love from the category of just a declarative statement. I say that a lot. I'm like, love you. Every time I'm on the phone with my wife, if I want to get off the phone, I say I love you. It doesn't mean I'm ready to die for her. It means we're done talking now. <laughs> love you, bye. <laughs> and she says I love you back. So it's not like I'm hanging up on her. Culturally, even in, in some ways, there's a good, a good expression of the declarative moment. If you've ever been dating someone and it's that tension between we really like each other, there's a future here maybe, and there's that, have we said it? Have we, have we said it? The friends will ask, have they said, has he said he loves you yet? Has he declared it? Now, of course, that's a moment that should be cherished and looked back upon with, with joy, and the Bible says there's power in our words. But just saying you love someone is not what Paul is writing this church to live out. He says, have the same love that I have. And what love did I have? When I was hard-pressed with two decisions in my life, one was far better for me and one was far better for you, he uses this biblical word that we often run from, which is nevertheless. This is what I want, but nevertheless, God used my life for the betterment of someone else. And he says, nevertheless, to remain with you in the, in, is more needful. In verse 25, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and for your joy in the faith. One of the, the ways that we need revival in the way that we praise this God of love and ask him to use our life to reflect his love is to actually consider how he's pressing our lives. There are people in your life that should hard press your interest. Love will meet you in a conflict of interests. And for all of you who have any proximity to another human, because love is very easy in theory. We love to sing about it. It's easy when you're alone in the cabin in the woods. It's like that old say, uh, saying, it's easy to be a parent until you have kids. It's easy to love people until you have a neighbor right over there. It's really easy to, to simplify the, the, the version of religion that we believe in. It's simple. It's love God and love people. So easy until there's people involved. And you actually get hard-pressed. And you have to make a decision in your life on what kind of person you want to be. And what Paul says, if you want the same love as I have for you, you will choose what's better, not for yourself, but for someone else. Now, I'm going to share a very small version of this. Sometimes you see it in the finest details so that you can actually start to grow in it. But I want to share with you a bumper sticker you used to see around town. 
And you don't see it as often anymore. I think it's because we've grown and less people experience this. But the bumper sticker says this. It's called, it says on the, the bumper, Boise Road Rage. No, you go first. It was when we were a smaller city, more like a farm town with a couple of tall buildings. Did anyone remember you'd come to the four-way stop? And then everyone would look at each other and be like, after you. And the next guy would be like, no, 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 after you. <laughs> and it's like, and then the person behind is like, my road rage is actually being caused by your kindness. Can someone please go? And so you blast through. Or, but there, there was a time when you could see this tiny picture of someone else's interest, someone else's preference. And I've always loved that as a, as a, as a picture of the kingdom of God. The, the Bible says that we are supposed to outdo each other in showing each other preference. So you go first. What is best for you when you are hard-pressed? Because every single one of you, if there is a mustard seed of faith, if there is any experience of the Holy Spirit, you will love a message about love in a sermon. And then tomorrow, you will have something in the form of a person that should cause you to be hard-pressed in just the everyday ways of life. And then there are some of you who are hard-pressed right now. There are people in your life that have interests that will press your being and what we find in Scripture to have the same love as Paul, and he'll later give us a greater example, it's not what's best for me, it is what is best for you. This is not simply a declarative statement. This is a decision that you make with your life. Who is the person that wins when conflict comes up? Who's the person that gets the thing when there's not enough to go around? Who's the person in your little universe that is preferred? And now Paul will put it right at the crossroads because there's only two options. It's either you at the center of everything or let nothing be done where you would actually be the one who receives at the cost of someone else. And the question, the hardest part about this is how do you do it? It sounds great, and Paul did it for this church, and we want to do it for each other, and joy will follow, but how? And this is the other way that Paul will give us something that will swim against the streams of our culture and just the way that we think about these things without biblical intervention, and here's what he says. Verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. This is a word that has, is emphasized not only in this exhortation on how love is actually going to be achieved, but throughout his letters. The battle belongs to the mind. He says, renew your mind in Romans 12. And then the, the, what follows is an absolute expose on loving one another. But how do we use the word so often? We use the word as a feeling, as an emotion. Paul does not say, have the same feelings that I had for you. He doesn't say have the same heart, which, again, it's good to have a, a heart of love, to not be discouraged, to be emboldened, to, to love one another and take heart with courage because it's going to require it. But Paul is referencing something that goes so far beyond just the temporary mood of how you feel about it. And so for this more than, this is a mindset more than a mood. You have to remember that. Because 
if we're not careful, we will equate love to how we feel. And this sermon is just a moment of inspiration, and hopefully you get some great emotion from it. And when you hit the streets, if all you have in your tank is some emotional love to give to the people that you're about to lay down your life for, you probably won't be very successful. But he says it's actually in the mind. And there are two types of minds that we can see and we'll call them the default mind and the renewed mind. The first one, he says, don't do it like this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. So that is the way that without a sermon, without the Holy Spirit, without a renewed heart and mind by the power of God, selfish ambition or conceit is just being human to look out for yourself, to think highly of yourself, to esteem yourself, there are qualities in that that should not be totally thrown out. But if that is your default setting, you will not be able to love when you are hard-pressed. And my favorite commentary on this is actually not from a preacher, but from a professor. His name's David Foster Wallace, prolific author, eventually took his own life, wrestling with the concept of what in this world was worth living for. And in one of his most famous commencement speech, he actually gives a commentary on the dangers of self-worship. And this is what he says. The insidious thing about self-worship is not that it's evil or sinful, although it is. It is that it is unconscious. It is your default setting. The world will not discourage you from operating on your default setting because the world of money and power hum along on the fuel of the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny, skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. He says the real danger of this is that it's not necessarily even something you're thinking about. It's totally unconscious. This is the way you will live if you just live according to your own emotions and feelings. Eventually, you will think only about yourself and your best interests, and you will live in a world that rewards it to the point where you have freedom and safety and comfort, and you're the Lord over your own little kingdom that he calls the skull-sized kingdom. You've made it to the center of your own little world alone, without anyone, and without actually scratching the purpose of your life. And so Paul says there's a renewal that has to happen. Instead of thinking like that, with lowliness of mind, I love that word loneliness, lowliness. It's, it's a word that could be translated humble or humility, which some of your Bibles may say. It's also a word that could say of no importance, which is not to say you're not important. It's to say you're not the most important. It's to say that there is no one here that God loves the most. That none of you can appeal to God and say, I am the most important in your kingdom or in the expression of your love or in the power of your spirit. God loves every single one of us as much as the other. And the danger of thinking that we're the center of the universe is that we may look at other people and think that they're not. And the fact is, God loves all all of us. So with lowliness of mind, a, a mind that does not put the most importance on our own life, each esteem others better than themselves. 
This is the renewed mind. I've been saying this throughout our series in Advent, but I read these kind of passages of Scripture, and I think, I am so honored, delighted, grateful to be a follower of Jesus. This is, I believe, the key and the cure to our world. And we get to come in here and worship the creator and the the master and the designer of this way of life. And then I get to encourage all of you to love one another by preferring one another. He says, look out not only, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the mindset that we are supposed to have. It is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. It is a mood or a mood, it is a determination that you leave this place, and when the alarm goes off tomorrow morning, you are with the mind that is given to you in this perspective of Scripture. You are going to do everything you can by the power of God to not live for yourself, but to live for someone else. And when I read this, I can't help but think of my neighbor Jeff. If you've never heard a story of my neighbor Jeff, you probably will if you stick around. I believe God gave me my neighbor to show me what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, but he loves me like that so I can learn from him so I can share. He's like the most loving, kind, sacrificial neighbor. And there was a time not long ago where he had to get a hip replacement. And so he gets a hip replacement. It's a fairly, anymore it's better, but it's still a painful procedure. And the next day after he comes home from the hospital, my wife looks outside and he is dragging our trash can down our driveway on trash day limping along with his half-healed hip that has just been replaced so that we wouldn't miss trash day. And I look at him, and I realize that he has done that ever since I've known him. My trash is his trash. (laughs) My house is as good as his house. Everything that I have in needs, he thinks of for me. And I imagine... When it was trash day, the day after his surgery, he probably didn't feel like taking my trash out, but he was determined to. And if you have a mind that is determined to love people, you'll have an altogether different perspective than a mind that is waiting to feel like loving people. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. Do not waste time being, uh, bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets of life. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. Love does not follow our emotions. It follows our behavior. You determine to love someone, and you might just find the secret to life is that the more you do to love them, the more you actually love them. And you don't need to have a neighbor like mine. You don't need to know the Apostle Paul personally. There is an example by the design of God in creation that hangs over every single one of our heads. Because when I think of esteeming others more than yourself, preferring the interests of others more than your own, it is, in fact, the way that every single one of us were brought into the world. Every single one of us were brought into the world through the womb of a mother. And there's some mothers out there that, you know, they find out they're excited and they can't wait and they're making the, you know, all the plans and parties. But most mothers get the news and it does take them a moment to catch their breath. You think about the news that you're with child. And mothers, you just have to reflect back to that moment you found out that you were carrying a child and there is an incredible weight that hangs over your head. 
For the next nine months, you are giving your life away through the form of sleep and your body and your diet and your mood and everything is going to go crazy and you're giving it away for the sake of life coming into the world. And then you continue down that road further and you realize that this is actually kind of another one of those tense moments in our culture because in a culture that wants love to be a feeling and love to be centered around self, you can see why the love a mother has for a child may be at odds. Because you're not just giving away nine months, you're giving away your life. You're giving away career aspirations, you're giving away uh, body image goals, you're giving away time and space and energy and sleep, and you're giving it all away so that life can come into this earth. And every single one of you, whether they did it perfectly or not, came under that design. That's how we are alive. Someone preferred our interests over their own. And, of course, being the time we wait for our Savior from heaven eagerly, we realize that there is no Christmas without the story of a mother dying to herself. You actually get the story in Luke chapter 1 where an angel comes and says, here's the plan, and she says she's greatly afraid. I could see why. The mission that she was given by God to be the mother of the child that we're all singing it was not a silent night, I'll tell you that. It was not easy. It was not a simple nativity setup. She gave away her life. She gave away the esteem of her neighbors. She gave away the reputation of her community. She laid her betrothal at the feet of God. And there is no Christ without the sacrifice of someone who put someone else's interests above their own. And so now we consider all of that, that you stand, you breathe on the design of God that someone loved you enough to bring you into this world. And Paul says, now here it is. This is all building to what Paul is doing to give us the most glorious example of love the world has ever known and will ever know. It is more than a declarative statement. It is a hard-pressed decision. It is more than a mood. It is a mindset. And it is Jesus more than any form of love you have or will ever experience in this life. So Paul says, look to my example as a tiny, tiny preview of the ultimate example. I said, look to my neighbor. Look to those who have gone before you. And none of them compare to what is going to be lifted up as the example that comes from heaven to earth in the form of the Christ. He says now, verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. This is where the mind actually comes from. This is where Paul got the mind. This is where I get the mind. This is where you get the mind. It is the mind of Christ that allowed the plan of salvation to, to play out who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. In other words, before the manger, there was the perfect holy trinity in heaven, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it says that Christ did not consider his status with the Godhead a thing to be clung to or grasped to. It wasn't a self-interest that he held on to. The better choice for him, in other words. But he emptied himself. 
And everything that Paul has walked us through on what love looks like will now be personified to perfection in Christ. It says, being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That would be the opposite of conceit. Conceit has you at the center of the universe, and you're the best, and you love yourself. And a man of no reputation is thinking very little, not of his you know, inner being, but he's emptying himself so that you could never accuse the Christ of conceit. If anyone, if anyone could have been conceited, it would have been the one that it says, was the word of God that spoke creation into existence, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the Savior of the world. If anyone could have put himself in the center, it would have been him. But it says he emptied himself and made himself of no reputation. He's born in Bethlehem. He dwells in Nazareth. 30 years of obscurity, and then he calls fishermen to follow him. And then it says he took on the form of a bondservant. This would be the opposite of selfish ambition. He did not come to be served. Now, again, if anyone could have selfish ambition, it would be the rightful king on the throne of all creation. He could have the ambition to just go take the throne. And yet it says, he came not to be served, but to serve, taking on the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death of the cross. When we look at the love of Christ that becomes the model for all love, everything Paul has described that we would love one another so that joy may be full, we look at Christ and it becomes the foundation for everything else. It becomes the foundation for every good thing you do in the kingdom of God following Jesus you have to see this picture of the love of God and realize that it all begins with God blowing away any competition for his love in your life. There is no one that can give you the love of Christ. He, he gave everything to the point of death, the humiliating death on a cross, so that the, the thing you long for the most would never have competition on earth. It's like, I love that phrase, Jesus loves you. You know, maybe you've seen the sticker, maybe you've said it. It's a compliment or encouragement. It's like, Jesus loves you. Sometimes you hear that and it's like, well, that's great. Add it to the list. A lot of people love me, you know? Not me. I'm not saying that, but that's maybe how you are. It's like, that's how we are. It's like, my mom loves me. So it's nice that Jesus loves me too. You know, obviously my neighbor loves me. Add, add, hey, Jesus loves me too. There is no love on this earth that compares to the hard-pressed decision that laid down life that compares to the mindset of loving you above self-interest. And every person who has ever given you the comfort and the consolation of love is only a tiny reflection of the love of Christ. There is nothing more. There is no greater love than Christ. And as we think about why we rally around hope and peace and love and joy because if you know this, you can have the same love. You can have a mindset for people that if God loves you to the point of the death of his son on the cross, then there is no one that you cannot love. 
And if you lose the love of God, it can happen quickly or it can happen slowly. But you will eventually warp into some performative exchange of emotion and words. And isn't that what Christmas can easily become? You get me a gift, I get you a gift. Pat each other on the back, check off the list. Isn't that what church can become? I'm here because God loves me, so I love him, and I sing the song, and then I get blessed, and I'm on my way. It is only with the radical view that there is no greater love than you will ever experience than the love of God emptying himself to die on your behalf. And so now we can finish exactly where we started. If there is any comfort in that love, if you are encouraged to know that the thing that will bring you the most joy in life is love, and that love is freely given by God himself, you have no performance to earn it, you have no religious duty to acquire it, you are loved today according to this model of God's love. And you can share it with each other. If there's any comfort in that, if there's any encouragement in that, if there's any consolation in that, then fulfill my joy and love one another. Take all of those potential conflicts that the, the, the world would love to see flare up into division, infighting, church splits, family splits, dinner tables with missing chairs. You take all of that and every single opportunity to divide is now a cross. Every single opportunity that you find you have a mindset and determination that you are going to be someone who loves like Christ. And here's the promise of Scripture. Joy will somehow follow. The scariest part of this sermon is to think of those people on the, the farthest out of your list and you think, that's my hard-pressed person and I've got to die for them with a mindset of love and love them like Christ loved me. What if I'm just left abandoned? What if I, in, in the moment of conflicted interest, choose their interest and it just falls apart? Here, here's what Paul will remind anyone who takes the model of Christ's love seriously. Therefore, God has given him highly exalted and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and of those in heaven and on those on earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The greatest act of love is met with the greatest act of exaltation of God. There's no more greater thing you can do with your life than love someone. And according to God's economy, if you give your life, if you have the same love that was modeled by Paul and exalted by Christ, in God's economy, you will find joy. In God's economy, Christ, obedient unto death, did not remain in the grave, but he will be the figurehead of the unity of all who worship him. And by God's economy, if you want to win, you have to die. But if you do, you will be exalted by God. He resists the proud, and he gives grace to the humble.
So we think about these three things as we center our hearts and our minds around the love of God. It is more than a declaration of happiness. It is a hard-pressed decision between your interests and the interests of someone else. It is more than a mood. It is the mind of Christ on display in the way you treat people. And it is Jesus more than anything on this earth.